You're listening to Coaching Cues Podcast, where experts all around the world answer your most burning questions surrounding the wide topic of strength training. Every week we tackle the what, the why, and the how of one specific topic in just 15 minutes. Straight to the point, no fluff. So without further ado, let's get straight into this week's episode. Hey everyone, my name is Lee Bell. I'm a sport and exercise science and strength and conditioning lecturer based at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK and I am also co-director of TRA Performance Education with my colleague Dr Paul Rimmer. I am currently undertaking a PhD in the area of overreaching and overtraining within strength sport populations and what attracted me to this area I guess is Firstly, how underrepresented it is within the sport and exercise science research domain. And secondly, just because I have a research interest in general within strength sports and resistance-based exercise populations. Okay, so firstly, let's look at the difference between overtraining and overtraining syndrome and unpick why. Although they sound the same, they're really not um, the, the same thing at all. So overtraining is a verb, it describes an action. In this case, the action refers to training in a fatigued state or training whilst not fully recovered. And that's it, really. In effect, you could overtrain after a single overloading workout, um, as it's simply just a state achieved by completing the increased training demand. So completing a gym session of increased volume and or intensity of effort above your typical habitual level. Um, For example, if you hit the weights room and you throw in a few more sets than normal or you decide that you want to squeeze out a few more reps or train closer to failure for a few more sets, um, then then that is essentially the kind of colloquial understanding of uh, or definition of overtraining. Um, and it's likely that you'll feel beat up for a few days. You might feel sore for a few days, maybe slightly less motivated to train. Um, but this is not overtraining syndrome. You've just pushed the boat out a little bit too far and and uh, dealing with the consequences. Overtraining syndrome is completely different. When we talk about overtraining syndrome, really what we're talking about is a is a complex clinical disorder that's underpinned by a whole host of multifactorial issues and symptoms and complex factors that can and should really only be diagnosed by a clinician. You know, if we take the current consensus definition of overtraining syndrome right now as it stands, quite an old definition in all honesty, but it's defined by an accumulation of training and or non-training stress. So this is uh, the result of lots of training, but also can be non-training related as well. So if you are training hard in the gym, but you're also dealing with social issues, family problems, exam and university stress, then this can all kind of accelerate the, um, the, the complex effects of overtraining syndrome. And it results in long-term decrement in performance capacity. So that's a key thing. It's long-term decrement in your athletic performance um, with or without related physiological and psychological signs and symptoms. So in effect, overtraining syndrome can be determined by that decrease in performance over a long period of time, but might not always necessarily be accompanied by uh, physiological or psychological symptoms. Um, the restoration capacity, and again, this is a key point, takes several weeks to months. So if you feel that you are or you have overtraining syndrome, but you recover back to baseline or, or slightly improve within um, a few days or a couple of weeks, you clinically would not be diagnosed with overtraining syndrome. It would be something slightly different, which we'll talk about shortly. But unless your symptoms persist for several weeks or more, 
you would not be diagnosed with overtraining syndrome. Um, in, in effect, several weeks to months. What does that mean? It is kind of construed as relatively vague. Um, but as I'm going to talk about in just a second, there is a, a kind of a high level of inter-individual variability, um, which is why we can't give an exact number. So it's a bit of a mouthful, really. Relatively vague. Um, it can lead and does and has led to lots of misunderstanding and misinterpretation, which we see not only in conversations with athletes or with coaches, but we're also seeing this misunderstanding in the peer-reviewed research as well. So it's not surprising, really, that the domain is kind of full of issues at this uh, this early stage. Um, one of our recent publications explored the the kind of understanding of uh, the difference between overtraining and overtraining syndrome in high-performance coaches. So we're talking about elite-level strength coaches here from weightlifting, from uh, powerlifting, and so on. And, and we found that many of them were unaware of the expert consensus, which is quite concerning, um, the, the expert consensus of their definitions, and quite often used terms such as overtraining and overtraining syndrome interchangeably. Um, I think you can argue that it's semantics, um, but it would be my job as a research scientist to ensure that practitioners do understand the core concepts of sport and exercise science. Um, ours and others research has um, accepted that this kind of lack of consistent terminology and definitions could be a concern for understanding and the etiology of overtraining syndrome um, and I think that that lack of consistency probably impacts both the ability to compare results between research studies of which there are not many really within the strength training domain but then also importantly how we communicate that practice back to practitioners and coaches so that they in turn can then feed that back to their athletes. Um, what's, what's even more confusing is that within the research, um, there's so much conflicting information. So, for example, some protocols have used um, terminology that, that highlights um, or, or purposely tries to induce overtraining syndrome. Um, typically, these don't reflect the traditional strength training practices we might see in weight rooms around the world, though. So, you know, remember, these are protocols that are artificially designed in order to induce overtraining syndrome so that then we can start to unpick and, and try and figure out what some of the, the prognostic markers might be. Um, and interestingly, when strength athletes report some symptoms of overtraining syndrome, um, they tend to be more from these artificial um, artificially induced studies than what they do if we were to choose to observe an athlete in their natural habitat. And it's rare, in all honesty, that when we observe athletes, we're actually seeing true overtraining syndrome. We're much more likely to see something like um, overreaching, which I'll come back to shortly. Um, there's also then an issue in terms of ecological validity and transferability from lab to the gym floor. So we're, we're seeing almost disparate, um, disparate conclusions, really, from what we observe with the protocols that are purposely inducing overtraining the ones where we, we kind of just see observations in practice. Um, weirdly, in the science, we've also had protocols called overtraining protocols that have led to improved performance, which is contradictory. We've had some athletes diagnosed, although informally, by the research team with overtraining syndrome that have taken a few days, a couple of weeks to recover. Again, that, that's not consistent with the, the current consensus. And we've had athletes taking, again, within the studies, six to eight weeks to recover, but have been labelled as overreached when, in effect, they should have been labelled as overtraining syndrome sufferers. So it's, it's kind of a bit of a heterogeneous, disparate pool of research that we're navigating at the moment, to be honest. 
Uh, in terms of the symptoms of overtraining syndrome, um, I, I find this phenomenally interesting, in all honesty, in my geeky world. Uh, the symptoms we see in endurance and strength sport athletes exhibiting long-term reduced performance are typically different. Um, so the symptoms that we see in endurance athletes are not what we see in strength training athletes. Um, additionally, not only that, but the mode of strength training also results in a very symptomatic profile as well. So what I mean by that is the symptoms that we might use to identify overtraining syndrome from a athlete that has undertook or is undertaking a high volume predominant block of training um, would be different to that that we would see from an athlete that was undertaking high intensity training and it almost exists along a continuum so those that are undertaking high volume training might um, exhibit or present symptoms that are similar to endurance athletes but those undertaking high intensity exercise tend to offer a, a completely um, different and varied symptomatic profile. Uh, the whole kind of inter-individual variability thing as well, which I mentioned previously, was even in a group of athletes undertaking the same mode of training, so whether it's high volume or high intensity, they can also present a varied and, and disparate range of symptoms as well. So it makes it very, very difficult for us to actually identify a gold standard test or a gold standard marker that says you are overtrained or you suffer from overtraining prognostically because there just is so much difference between them. Um, there are probably close to a hundred or more different symptoms that have at some point been um, offered as a gold standard marker or certainly a, a marker of interest for overtraining syndrome. Uh, some are novel, some are too expensive for practitioners and, and really don't offer much other than for clinicians at this moment in time. But again, they're just not valid and reliable in all scenarios. Um, the majority of them have been around for a while and, and are just kind of part of the woodwork now, the part of the dogma and rhetoric that you kind of see shared on a daily basis on Instagram posts, so that the kind of symptoms such as um, increase in resting heart rate, changes in testosterone and cortisol, which at some point and in some studies have been shown um, or, or certainly have been presented by athletes that have been suffering from overtraining syndrome, but are definitely not, not reliable enough or valid enough to say, actually, that is a marker that we can rely on when uh, we begin to diagnose. And currently, the only way we can determine overtraining syndrome at the moment is to retrospectively analyse the athlete's training journey and then learn from that process. So we look back at training, we say, OK, well, how long did it take you to recover? If it's several weeks, several months, then yes, that, that athlete probably likely suffered from overtraining syndrome. But in all honesty, in the research, certainly um, through our research so far, um, we, we just haven't seen it. We, we might have seen it once or twice in the research. But again, it's a kind of a disparate environment and climate of research that we're trying to navigate right now. So uh, if we've seen it, it, it is very, very rare. But what we are seeing is... Uh, athletes that have just maybe overshot slightly in a training block and, and just take a few days to a couple of weeks or so to recover from. Um, in terms of what kind of practitioners take from that is there does appear to be, and rightly so, um, expertise from the coaches, which allows them to use their experience and their intuition to avoid overtraining syndrome before it occurs rather than using this retrospective analysis to say, OK, well, you were suffering from the overtraining syndrome and, and next time we need to reel it back. Um, and I, I guess just lastly, kind of on, on that matter is if we team up the kind of uh, coaching tuition 
with subjective measures. So we're asking the right questions of our athletes. And we couple that with some of the more kind of sensitive objective measures that give us an indication of acute training from that state. So things like uh, daily jump testing, bar speed, so uh, velocity-based metrics, rate of force development, peak power, peak force and such. Then again, we, we can tend to then focus more on avoiding the problem than actually curing it. I've mentioned overreaching a couple of times now. So what I'd like to do is just circle back briefly and just contextualize that term. It does have different meanings depending on its context. So um, I think we'll kind of break that down and, and unpin that slightly. So if we think about uh, a continuum where at one end we have acute fatigue effects of a single overloading training session. So one that might take uh, several minutes to a few days, depending on the kind of volume intensity proximity to failure, um, occurrence of muscle damage that has occurred. And at the other end of the continuum, we have this kind of complete clinical overtraining syndrome. Overreaching kind of sits in the middle, and, and that needs to then be broken down into two subcategories, which I'll, I'll circle back to in a moment. Um, much like we have a recognized definition of overtraining syndrome, we also have a recognized definition, a consensus definition of overreaching. Again, it's fairly vague, and it has different meanings depending on context, but um, it's essentially the same definition of overtraining syndrome with just one major difference, and that's the time cost to recovery. So whereas overtraining syndrome has this recovery time course of weeks to months, overreaching has a time course of days to weeks. Uh, again, relatively vague, but um, it, what we're saying here is that if it's longer than several weeks, it's overtraining syndrome, should be assessed retrospectively. If it's days to weeks, then it's very likely that you are suffering from overreaching. And if it's minutes to days um, or a couple of weeks, then then it's very likely it's just a, a kind of an incidence of acute fatigue. Um, overreaching is typically the result of excessive training demand over a period of time rather than a singular session. Um, and it results in an accumulation of fatigue that takes this this, um, this weeks to recover from. And here's a crazy bit, really. The symptoms are exactly the same for what we would see in, during overreaching than what we would do in overtraining syndrome and in some cases even acute fatigue as well. So again, there's actually no way of defining the condition until we retrospectively assess this time course to recovery. So in effect, although I've talked about these conditions being a longer continuum, it's actually more like a spectrum from acute fatigue to overreaching and then from overreaching to overtraining syndrome because we don't see altered symptoms as, as the athlete progresses from one condition or one state to the next. Uh, last year, actually, I was involved in a really cool paper, a really cool project led by researchers OT, uh, sorry, UTS in Australia. And they found that um, when they surveyed um, quite a high uh, number of strength-based athletes who had at some point suffered from an unexplained decrease in performance, um, the kind of classic symptoms of muscle soreness, uh, sore joints, mood changes, things like that, uh, were just as prevalent in those suffering performance decrease for a couple of days than those um, suffering the same symptoms for a period of four months. So again, we can't really use those symptoms to say with any confidence that our athlete is suffering from one condition or the other without, again, looking at that time course to recovery after the fight. Um, the thing about overreaching as well is that we can break it down into two subcategories, like I've already mentioned, and, and they are based on performance outcome. So after this period of, of weeks of recovery, if our athlete deloads, recovers and improves performance after a couple of weeks or so, so the, the terminology we typically use for that is super compensation, although I must admit I'm not a particular fan of that term, we would say that they were functionally overreached. So they overreached, but there was a functional outcome because they actually improved performance. Um, 
if, however, they don't improve performance, so they return to baseline or they spend an extended period of time uh, recovering without seeing any improvement um, in performance, then they would say that they suffered from non-functional overreaching. So there was no function to it. There was no real purpose. Um, in strength sports and bodybuilding um, and so on, we might intentionally plan an overreaching phase. It can happen by accident. You know, maybe we get a little bit too excited. We throw in an extra training session uh, across a training block and we overreg the pudding slightly, but we can intentionally plan an overreaching phase. Um, we might refer to that as an impact cycle or a concentrated loading phase. But essentially what it is, is a, a period of around kind of 10 um, sorry, seven to 10 days, it depends on the sport, depends on the athlete, where we really ramp up the training demand. So we might be training every day, we might be training twice a day or, or three times per day, depending on the athlete. And if you think about a typical progressive overload approach to training where we train, then we recover and we allow an adaptation to occur and then we improve slightly, we train and we recover and we adapt and we continue to improve slowly. An overreaching phase is a little bit more like train, 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 then recover. Then we'll see an adaptation and then we hopefully will see an improvement in performance. Um, so in order to, to provide this intentional overreach, we really do need to ramp up the training demand. And as you can imagine, that provides a huge stimulus for the athlete, but it also provides a huge accumulation of fatigue effects as well. So during that overreaching phase and in the, the days and, and, and weeks following, the athlete will feel pretty beat up, pretty broken. They'll probably hate you as the coach as well. But what we're hoping for is as fatigue dissipates and we ride this adaptive process curve, that we'll see some really good performance gains at the end. Um, hopefully that will occur again you know if we overshoot the training somewhat we, we might push a little bit too far and we might see this non-functional overreaching because we are creating an adaptive stimulus but by the time we realise that stimulus the athletes had so long away from training that they've actually then started to, um, to detrain Thank you for listening to Coaching Cues Podcast. If you would like your question to be answered by an expert, please head to coachingcues.org slash ask. See you next week.